0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 146 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and the Burden of Command podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I can do for you, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P H A L A N X.com. Just another quick reminder that we're just a few episodes out from the rebranding of the show, where the Burden of Command podcast becomes the Responsible Leadership podcast. Again, not much is really going to change content, layout, structure-wise of the show. This is pretty much just a uh, renaming, if you will. All right, now on to today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Paula Caligieri. Dr. Kalagiri is a Damore McKim School of Business Distinguished Professor of International Business at Northeastern University. She has been named as one of the most prolific authors in international business for her work in cross cultural management, global leadership development, and cultural agility. She is president of Tasca Global, a consulting firm that specializes in assessing and developing cultural agile professionals and boasts a client list that includes the U.S. Army, Peace Corps, Cigna, 3M, and Johnson & Johnson. She is a frequent expert guest on CNN and CNN International, and author of the LinkedIn Learning course, Managing Globally. Her new book, and one we'll be talking about quite a bit here today, is Build Your Cultural Agility, The Nine Competencies of Successful Global Professionals. Now, we talk a lot, as you can tell here, we're going to talk a lot about leadership and culture, and especially uh, leading internationally and cross-culturally. So go ahead and uh, settle in for this outstanding conversation, and I want to get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let the conversation roll out. All right, Paulo, welcome to this episode of the of Command Podcast.
1: It's my pleasure to be here, Earl.
0: Oh, I'm happy to have you here. And we're going to talk about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, having been in the Marines, traveled around, experienced some different uh, cultures, uh, mainly Japanese cultures. Uh, but before we dive into that, let me start you off where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. I I, th- I think of burden... Uh, More in the sense of responsibility. And I think of the idea of command as leadership. So I think of it as the responsibility of those who are in a leadership role and and what to do with that to enable those who are under them to flourish.
0: Mm. No, I like that. And and, and that's really a Mm -hmm. lot of what your book, uh, Build Your Cultural Agility, The Nine Competencies of Successful Global Professionals, is really at the heart of that definition, right?
1: Oh, a- absolutely. So everything about cultural agility is is the ability to be comfortable and effective in different contexts and with people from different cultures. And culture could be, you know, those of a different generation, those of a different professional area, socioeconomic status, national culture. We can define culture in lots of different ways. Um, but the idea is, if especially in a leadership role, is helping those um, who are reporting to you really flourish under, under your leadership.
0: Yeah. So let, let's go ahead and start there. Cause you, you kind of mentioned a little bit here, but like when you use the words cultural agility, what, what do you want people to, to understand those words to mean?
1: So, you know, we're, we're humans we're, we have been for however many years we've been walking the planet. We, our brains have been storing data. Our data, our brains, you know, whenever we walk into a new situation that's novel, our brains want to predict what's happening in that situation using the data that we've stored. That is the most natural human aspect of us, right? Mm -hmm. What ends up happening when we're in a different cultural context, and again, that culture could be generational, it could be professional, it could be, you know, national, ethnic, whatever, um, whenever we walk into that situation, our brains want to believe that we can interpret subjectively what's happening around us. The truth is that we cannot. <laughs> yeah. We don't know the situation well enough to know how to interpret the, the environment. So when I think of cultural agility, it's really those competencies that we need to walk into a novel context, however defined, and be able to slow down the processing and understand that in order to be effective, one really needs to take the time to learn the situation.
0: Well, and I think that is extremely powerful there, because as you mentioned, this is natural human behavior. Uh, you know, we use terms like unconscious bias. We use terms like just bias or prejudice. But, you know, like you said, these these uh, rules, these schemas that we create off of our past experiences they kind of take over autopilot and that's what leads to most of these issues, right?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, early you said something and I'm so sorry I'm going to do this, but I have to. I I cannot stand the phrase unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. I can't, like implicit bias. And I'll tell you, I don't, I'm usually not so reactionary, but so many organizations have been using unconscious bias training. And what we know is that it's actually doing more harm than good. Because what ends up happening when you focus on unconscious bias training, it's lovely that we're we're enabling people to understand their their sort of the neuroscience of how they they process subjective reality. But in calling it bias and in focusing on what our quote unquote you know biases might be We end up highlighting the fact that the differences that we have, what we need to do that one of the fundamental aspects of cultural agility, and those who are culturally agile, is their ability to quickly find similarity with one another. And, and so this highlight, this kind of this hyper focus on differences is really harming people's ability to, to operate with cultural agility. So at the same time, we want to walk into situations and, and respect the context that we're in and the novelty that we're in and the fact that our brains aren't going to be able to process effectively. We also want to um, enable the the, connect if you will with those who are in that context because you know what that's how we build trust gain credibility communicate collaborate uh it's through similarity so so i i sort of wish that phrase and that the, all those training would go that training would go away and that we could start you know focusing on what, what's working <laughs> sorry you hit a nerve <laughs> no no
0: i mean i, I love it because as, as somebody who who does some uh unconscious bias training you may find this a little shocking, but I agree with you, and that that's kind of how we, we frame it, if you will, is, you know, I, I put out there, and, and I'm sure you've probably seen this uh, before, but like according to geneticists, you take the two most different people on the face of the planet, there's less than a tenth of a percent of difference between them genetically speaking. That means we're 99, I'm from Tennessee, I can do that math, we're 99.9% the same. And, and, and I think that's a, I agree with you. I think that's a key component to, to really focus on. And and then we get into where these quote unquote biases come from, what they actually mean. And that it's not just that it's okay that we have them, but the point is, and, and maybe you agree or disagree with this, but that you're aware they're filters, right? That That's what we're talking about. We're talking about filters of thinking and you need to be aware that they exist, why they exist, and how to calibrate for those. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think we're we're saying the same thing in a slightly different way. You know, at my my lens is, hey, look at, I'd rather talk about the fact that we all have socializing agents in our life. We were not born with our norms. We mm-hmm. weren't born with our values. Those were all socialized into us from the moment we were born, the families we were born into, the communities we were born into, our educational systems, our military training. Our, our, um, it could be the sports that we played, education we've received, the, the jobs we, we've taken along the way, the companies we've worked for. You keep layering it on, have all had some influence and have, have had some socializing aspect to us. And just a respect for the fact that my combination of socializing agents are different from someone else's combination of socializing agents, enabling us to see the world through our own <laughs> eyes that will be different from the way someone else does. And that's about as far as far as I'll go in terms of sort of highlighting the difference just to say, hey, you know, we, we've we not walked the same, even siblings have not, do not have the exact same socializing agents.
0: Right. hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I'm curious, um, what what is your, I guess, origin story, if you will? Like, what got you to be so passionate about cultural agility?
1: Oh gosh, yeah, that it's a it's a fun story, it, it, and and I, I always wanted it to be more elegant, but it's not. So, um, in 1987, I was studying abroad in in Rome, Italy, uh, and. And unfortunately, it was also 19, the fall of 1987, um, Black Monday happened, the market tanked, and the money I had saved, um, I'm a blue-collar kid from Buffalo, New York, so the, the money I had saved to to go on this experience was gone pretty quickly because of the, the market. So what ended up happening, all the other kids at school were, were pretty wealthy and they were able to call home and, and ask for money. Um, unfortunately, I, I couldn't because my mom and dad said sweetheart get a job <laughs> so i i stayed in rome um got a job i was tutoring and as a result while all the other american kids were running around europe um i was pretty much having a very real experience a, a, a kind of a, a true italian experience i had italian friends i went to visit my relatives in italy and had an Italian boyfriend, life was good, um, but it was different. It was different from everyone else's experience. Anyhow, fast forward, I went, went back to college, um, finished off in psychology, and, and my psychology professor said, Paula, if that experience was so developmental for you, why don't you study it? And I, I always laugh. I said in 80, 88, 89, I wrote, um, I want to study what makes people effective living and working internationally. And I want to know how they change from deep developmental cross cultural experiences. so thirty what would that be thirty three years later? I am still studying what makes people effective living and working internationally and how they change from deep developmental cross cultural experiences so that that's my that's my unelegant story
0: <laughs> well no and and I love it because it's it's very similar to mine in a lot of ways, except mine wasn't in, in a foreign country mine was you know here in in America sadly is you know, again, as I mentioned, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, uh, Appalachian Mountains, um, and you know everybody in my hometown looked like me. They they thought like me. They went to church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night like me. I mean, it was it was very uh, very uniform, right? And then I decide to join the United States Marine Corps, and I get to uh, the the receiving station. We call them Meps and I start seeing a few people who look a little bit different but not a lot we're still in tennessee at this point in time and then i get on the bus and i get to paris island and quite literally the the first uh the first african american male i had an experience with was this 6 foot 5 300 pound drill instructor yelling and screaming at me and doing all these things right and I get to my squad bay and there's Hispanics. There's uh, uh, my, my rack mate uh, was Muslim. And the the point I'm, I'm making here is I went from being very much in a, in a, for me, a safe environment of, I knew everybody, I knew what they were going to think. I, it was very safe to, I know nothing about anybody of these other 72 people around me. And it was immersion therapy that kind of got me as like, Hey, this is kind of neat i like what this culture's got going on hey this is kind of neat you know and and it was it was yeah i, I had no choice but to to really kind of learn these other cultures
1: oh but 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 you know what you you i'll, I'll argue for your confidences right there when you said oh wow that's really neat look at how unique these you know this one oh this one's interesting oh this is really kind of fun to talk to about x All of those, you know, you help people in positive regard, all of those are evidence of those cultural agility competencies. That's the goal. That's the goal of the book. That's the goal of the company. That's the goal of everything we're doing right now is getting folks to see differences as as positive as opposed to um, negative. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you need those competencies, whether naturally or or developed, um, in order to do that.
0: And I like that. And and we'll get into these competencies here in a second, Um, or maybe we should get to them first. I'll let you be the judge of that. But let me ask the question this way. You know, we we were, I guess you could say lucky to have the instances happen in our lives that we did. But, you know, what is the statistic that, you know, most people never uh, leave more than like a 50 mile radius of their where they were born or something like that? how do we encourage and how do we get more people to get outside of that 50 mile bubble and and experience more cultures?
1: Yeah. And and you know, we can, we can talk about it in both directions. And I would argue that people who have passports full of passport stamps also don't have cultural agility. So it wasn't, it's not just physically going from one country to another or breaking out of your 50 mile radius bubble. It's not just physically going from one place to another, dropping down and and breathing the air of another country that makes people culturally agile. It's the ability to have authentic conversations with people who are demographically different and find similarity and and find ways to see each other as as trustworthy, incredible, and people with whom we want to collaborate and communicate. And the second that flips over, all of a sudden, those, those experiences of being elsewhere are so powerfully developmental. So, for example, I, I guess going back to my own, you know, kind of, yeah, story, had I just, it was a blessing that I ran out of money. It was a blessing that I w- was unable to continue, um, kind of having the travels that I wanted to have, if only for the fact that it, it kind of like you, it forced the situation sort of forced me to um, have these authentic, real conversations with people who had a different background than I did. So I, I, I just I think, you know, of course, we want to encourage people to get to get out of their bubble. But more than anything, I, I want to encourage people to, you know, have the curiosity and the, the perspective taking and the humility to engage with those who are different wherever they might be.
0: Mm. so in your experiences with with all this is this something that you see as being kind of a uniquely american affliction or do you think other cultures suffer from this as much
1: (laughs) it's a uniquely human affliction (laughs) you know we're, we're 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 you know it's funny um our our cognitive evolution our biological evolution rather has not caught up to our cognitive evolution so we might think of ourselves as so enlightened but but you know hey we're we're human our whenever our whenever we're under situations of stress or anxiety we cling to familiar um, it is the most natural thing in the world so it is fundamentally human to kind of gravitate toward those who are demographically similar to you. It, it's not racist. It's not sexist. It's not xenophobic. It's not pick the whatever. It's truly just human. So, so what we're doing is we, we're sort of overriding a, a sort of evolutionary tendency that we have, and helping what helping people see each other as um, kind of more similar than different. And I don't want to I don't want to overplay that because there's a lot of other you know elements to cultural agility but but it's not just an american thing i promise you there's there's people who are am- amazingly culturally agile who are american and some who are not likewise pick the country and i promise you the range exists um so it's it's everywhere
0: yeah no and and, and i agree with you i mean you know again uh, after i went through my my school uh for the military my first duty assignment was uh in okinawa japan and uh, you know it was amazing to me like i remember very distinctly um being with one of my friends we're out in town and he makes the comment he's like why don't these people learn english Japan <laughs> <a German> guy <laughs> why why but uh, Yeah. so um well, let's talk about these competencies here a second. Now, what I like about them is uh, I, I like things, maybe it's a military guy in me, but I like things that are compartmentalized and, and very easy to digest. And I think you did a really good job with this by uh, breaking them up into the three different parts. And, and um, you know, listeners, we're not going to get to all of these because I want you to go out and grab a copy of Build Your Cultural Agility. Uh, it's a great book, and uh, it, it highlights a lot of these things we've already talked about. about. It. It's not just punching a passport and landing in, in uh, Taipei and, and being like, hey, I've been to Taipei. Well, you haven't. You you set foot there, but you haven't experienced the culture and 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 the people. Um, anyways, you, you break these down. So part one is self-management competencies. And you start out with tolerance of ambiguity for comfort in a novel environment. Now, I love the, that you used ambiguity there because I think no matter what setting we're in, That's probably the thing that makes a human being the most uncomfortable period is ambiguity, right?
1: Oh, our brains hate it. Our brains can't stand whenever we're in situations of uncertainty or ambiguity or complexity. People vary in their ability to handle ambiguity. So what we're trying to do is just help individuals build out that competency so that they can linger longer being in a situation that they can't fully predict. And that, that's, that's actually a fundamental um, part of that competency. Um, but, but acknowledging that we all start from somewhere and some of us kind of have a naturally high level of tolerance for ambiguity and some of us are pretty low. Uh, but you know what? We can all move the needle on that one. Really important.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. And, and so what are some ways, like, like uh, how do you build up that, that tolerance for ambiguity?
1: Yeah, Um, boy, there's so gosh, as as you can since you have the book in front of you, you can see there's lots of different ways uh, to do it, and it uh, to some extent it depends on where someone the start point from which an individual you know is is coming. So um, some of the most basic ways would be you know of course the usual trying things that that you wouldn't normally do. Interacting with those with whom you would nor- not normally uh, interact, you know, the, the, the like kind of keep continually pushing yourself and your boundary and allowing yourself to spend more and more time not making judgments. So you make the, the process conscious of your, your judgments that you make. Um, we encourage a lot of mindfulness meditation, the idea of fully being present in the moment because if you're present in the moment and kind of view like basically allow your subjective impressions to be present, but then, you know, kind of set them aside and just be fully present, that helps a lot. Um, so there's a series of ways to do it. It a little bit depends on the start point, but lots of different ways. I'd recommend mindfulness though, mindfulness training.
0: Well, And I, and I love that because the irony is really like mindfulness, meditation, all that, that, that is uh, kind of a, a cultural piece, right? That's not something that's very. It's not something that's even very, you know, English or Anglo-Saxon or, or American. That that is something that has a deep root in a lot of, uh, you know, Asian cultures and even in some uh, some old school, uh, like say Viking cultures and stuff, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And and what's so fundamental about it? You're right. And I I think I I think it. You know quite a bit of a Buddhist practice, but I think the idea of that non-judgmental experience of, of the present is, is really kind of <laughs> the ultimate aim here is uh, being in that situation of ambiguity without judging it. Yeah. Well,
0: and, and there's a certain level of, of curiosity and, and open-mindedness, not just mindfulness, but open-mindedness uh, that has to come with that and, and being, being willing to to seek out exposure to other cultures. And and here's the great thing, let me just add on to that real quick. Here's the great thing about the the America that we live in right now. We talked about that 50-mile bubble uh a, a little bit ago. It it doesn't there, there's a lot of cultural variation inside of that 50-mile bubble now in in most places, right?
1: Right. You absolutely do not need to travel to build cultural agility. You do not need to get on a plane to build cultural agility. You do not need to work in a multi you just need to be willing to experience each other, you know, as as humans first and and, and then interact in a way that you're not using that, that subjective lens. Um, so so you know that you mentioned curiosity and I, I, I kinda wanna pick up on that because that's another one of those really important self-management competencies. Um, with this one, it, it, it's, it's been fascinating to do the research on this one, this particular competency, because every, every one of us has a natural level of curiosity. It was it was honed when we were children. It was either reinforced or stifled at some point. We kind of allowed ourselves to let our curiosity flourish or it, it kind of tamped down. Um, so, so again, like, like all of these competencies, wherever your start point might be, What we do is we encourage people, again, wherever their start point is, to push two questions further than they would normally go. So for some people, they meet somebody new and, and they're introduced, very nice, and they wouldn't think to ask any more questions. Um, you know, thinking about you, Earl, and your first experience in the military, my guess is you were asking lots of questions, and that's just, it was naturally you. Right. So wherever that natural point is, we encourage two more until that becomes a habit. Um, and you'd be amazed at how that alone helps people reshape their subjective lenses of each other and the context that they're in. Again, it's not just about inter- human interaction. It's about the situation as well.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of situations, you know, with with all of these, once you become aware of some of these cultural differences uh, and and you you accept culturally different people into your circle, if you will, there's always bound to be some type of of conflict, if you will, uh, that comes up. For instance, you know, the the kind of the I'll say the infamous one that that pops in my head is when you talk to to most people in America, they're going to say, well, you know, you need to have a firm handshake. You need to look somebody in the eye. But you know, if if you're dealing with somebody, and I keep going back to Japan because that's really my my big experience, that's really a sign of like disrespect and aggression there. And so, how do you get people to be able to kind of merge those two realities and come to an understanding uh, where cultures kind of clash a little bit?
1: Yeah, and, and that's it. That's that. Um... The idea, so so the bounce back that ability. Yeah, things are going to go wrong. That's why resilience is also one of the competencies that that we that we highlight in the book. But the idea of the fact that people behave differently to mean different things. I, the example I love to use. Um, you, you mentioned eye contact. That's a really good one. Culture is very tremendously in terms of, of eye contact and what that means. The the one that that gets me in a bit of trouble. I I know you can't see me, but I'm a very smiley person. I, I was raised socialized to smile a lot. I was socialized as a child. My parents, if they saw me and it looked like I wasn't smiling, what's wrong? You know, why are you so mopey? You have lots of toys to play with, go play, you know, like it was, that's how I was socialized. Well, as a result, you know, I kind of bounced from country to country here for the work I do, and I realized, oh wow, there's cultures where not only not only is my smile making me, you know, less look less credible as as a professor, professor as a professional, as an academic, as a consultant, it's also might be making me look slightly slightly crazy, <laughs> you know. So it's just smiles are reserved in certain places for um, opportunities of sincere happiness with those we love. So I've had to learn, um, one to not interpret smiles and no, I promise every one of your listeners, you cannot interpret the emotional affect of others unless you know the person exceedingly well. Um, and, and don't believe you can in another culture. So somebody who's not making eye contact doesn't mean lack of trust. It means not comfortable making eye contact or it's respectful to not make eye contact. Smiling a lot doesn't mean I'm crazy. it <laughs> sometimes just just means my neutral face is kind of happy. Yeah. Um, likewise, when people aren't smiling it doesn't mean they're angry or indifferent. It means they're just living, living life here. So um, it's a lot of it's a lot of that. So when you think about the way we do cultural agility training, we do it in kind of two pieces. Um, one piece is this this exactly what we're doing right now. it's the awareness building. It's that idea that once you know what to look for, you can see it if it's present. You won't see it if it's not, but you can we just want to make sure we give people enough information about the context that they're in to see it if it should arise. So if you see someone not making eye contact or if you see someone not smiling and you want to interpret a certain way, so just enough information. So one side of it, is awareness building, and then the other piece of it is building out these competencies that, in fact, we're talking about, um, that you and I are, are discussing in the, about the book. So it's both pieces equally critical.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and I'll tell you another one, and this kind of uh, goes into to part two a little bit. Um, learning from others who are culturally different from you. Uh, you know, what I got in trouble with, and and I still do every once in a while. Uh, You know, I grew up in the South, we said y'all and folks, and it was very kind of informal. And then when I started getting into, you know, higher level English courses and and doing, you know, some public speaking, you know, back in the day, it was like, well, no, you need to be very formal, you need to to show respect to the audience, you say ladies and gentlemen. Well, you know, now that's changed, because we've become a lot more aware of LGBTQ plus issues. And you're being told, hey, you know, if you're that formal, ladies and gentlemen, you could be very uh, exclusionary of a lot of your audience. So, you know, say y'all, say folks, say everyone. And so, you know, that was one of those things, whenever somebody brings that up to me, I'm like, cause of, of having it beaten to my head so often be formal, be formal, be respectful. Now they're saying, Hey, go back to your roots. It, it, but it's, it's nice to have somebody feel comfortable enough to come up and say, Hey, you did this, this is how this made me feel, right
1: right, right yeah that's I think what you're touching on right there, Earl, is one of the competencies in that that section in that part uh, second part of the book on relationship building competencies. It's that idea of perspective taking and humility um, that you have the humility to say, "Hey, look, I'm really good at." you know, supply chain, marketing, journalism, medicine, pick the profession, it doesn't matter. But I don't know how to be good at that here. So, so is there something one can do? I could do differently that would enable me to be more effective with this particular, in your case, like you described with this particular audience, and then to be open to say, oh, you know, okay, use folks and everyone and, you know, (laughs) y'all, <laughs> whatever, whatever works. Um, but, but to not resist it, to say, to not say, I know how to handle this. I've got it. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, it, uh, it, it's to me, th- that humility that to me of all of the competencies of all nine, that one is the granddaddy of all of them. The, and that might not be correct. The grandparent, the, the, <laughs> elder statesperson, <laughs> the the foundational competency because it's that ability to say I know I, I can do what I do but now I have to learn how to do it here um, and that one that one by far boy if someone has humility I, I know I can place them almost anywhere
0: mm. well and, and I like that I like what you just said there if someone has humility I can place them almost anywhere because I think that holds true for every aspect of, of life, and especially in leadership. Like, humility is just such an essential ingredient. Now, it's, when we say humility, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here on this, but we're not talking about just kind of being, you know, a doormat, but it's it's knowing when and how to, to accept feedback and, and take it in and make appropriate changes, right?
1: Absolutely, there is there is nothing. Um, you're not reducing yourself in any way by having humility. What you're saying is, look at it's kind of just the opposite. You know your 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 worth. You know your merit. You know what you do technically. You know your competence and your chops. What you're doing is, you have enough of that. Enough. You are elevated enough to be able to say, I want to keep. I want to keep going in terms of my professional success. So environment, help me learn how to, how to be and how to leverage what I do really well. Help me leverage how to do that here. Um, Just, it is, it is so critical, but definitely it does not, it is not a, um, it shouldn't feel in any way that you're denigrating your own skills or abilities or competencies. It's, it, it should feel very empowering.
0: I agree. I agree. Let's go ahead and pop over into part three here for a second, because um, I like this one here. Cultural adaptation to respond as expected in a culturally diverse situation. So what, what does that mean when you when a reader reads that? What do you want them to take away from that?
1: Right. So so this, this part three, um, it's interesting because all of the other competencies, there's, you know, academics call linear, that more is better. This one's a little, this section's a little different because this is the situation where we need to be able to say, okay, I have enough of, I have enough cultural awareness to walk into a situation and recognize and see the cultural differences that are present But now I need to know what to do with it. So, what you just described, that cultural adaptation, that's one of the three responses. So, cultural adaptation means look, I'm going to start acting in a way that's consistent with the expectations of those in that context. So, it could be if you're with those of a younger generation, you might, you know, like you might dress more casually or you might um, use a different technology to interact or you might, you're, you're basically using the behaviors that they're more accustomed to. Um, if you're in a different national culture, you might dress differently or you might like smile less as we were joking or use less eye contact as we were, as we were discussing, you know, you're behaving in a way that, that, that meets their expectations. So basically you as a person, the way you're comporting yourself will hit their brains in a way that they're going to see consistency with their their expectations so you're kind of working with their subjective perceptions Um, the other two are a little different so the other two are cultural minimization and cultural integration so we have adaptation minimization integration adaptation is what everyone thinks about it's it's kind of comporting yourself to the way the others are expecting Um, we use that a lot in sales and marketing and customer service Um, government relations, any time you need to really get the response that uh, kind of the the swiftest way to gain trust. In the case of cultural minimization, it's saying, you know what, again, I've used my cultural awareness, I'm walking into a situation, I see where the variance is between kind of my way and the way everybody's doing it culturally, but you know what, I'm going to have to be a leader in this regard. This is that burden of command and figure out how to persuade and motivate and reinforce a different set of norms. And that is ones that are expected behaviors. So basically, you're socializing people to be an act in a different way. That could be we see that a lot when people are um, looking at ethics, security, safety, risk management, any financial controls. We see that a lot with um production facilities, operations, quality standards. It's, it's kind of that almost the non-negotiables when you're as a leader interacting. Um, and then there's that third third bucket or that third competency under this umbrella of task management competencies, and that's the integration. And that's usually, we see that a lot with, with teams, product teams, innovation teams, work teams, whatever. And that's the ability to say, look, at, it's not my way. It's not your way, but we're gonna find a way, we're gonna create a new way that's gonna be just our teams. And you know what? It's not gonna be 100% my norms or yours or anyone else's. It's just gonna be ours. So our team ultimately starts to look and act a little different, more more act than look. <laughs> um, it's responding in a way that's different from other teams. and And, that's, and, and what great leaders, culturally agile leaders, know how to do is they know when to pull each of those levers, um, so so all of them really important skills. But but they're kind of like you need the right the right lever at the right time. Yeah,
0: no, and, and I, I love all that. And then as I'm looking at this and uh, hearing how you describe it, this to me seems like the section that really is kind of like the. I mean, all of these are important, but it seems like this section right here. Is kind of like the guidebook for dealing with uh, remote work and and the environment we're in right now with COVID. This is a kind of a good guide on how to make some of the changes that are being made in the workplace right now, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, absolutely, absolutely. Because yes, <laughs> we we could we could talk just about that. I, in fact, I wrote a piece pretty recently um, about organizational culture. 'Cause we're hearing people say things like, Oh, well, you know, you need to be in the office, you know, two point four days to in order to maintain organizational culture. That's that's not exactly true or accurate or consistent with wealth creation if you're in a if you're in a for profit organization. You you need the amount of kind of reinforced socialization, you need the amount of kind of tight organizational culture that you need in order to compete. So if you compete on a very tight this is how we do it this is how this is critical i, I promise you you're going to need more FaceTime because you need more socialization you need more control anymore you if you're in a situation if your organization is in, in a situation where frankly you know integration adaptation is really the the expectation then then there really isn't the need for a lot of FaceTime. Um, and and organizations can can continue the work that they do, but but that idea of now we need leaders to kind of to step up and have these culture conversations in a very deliberate, strategic way, um, and not just assume that they again they can follow the herd and say, you know, we're going to do hybrid or we're going to go completely remote or we're going to we want everyone back. You know? <laughs> we need to really be thinking about this in terms of strategy.
0: Yeah, well, and I think the the point of it is there's no. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. There's the answer that works best for you is kind of what you're saying, right?
1: Right. And the, wor- the answer that works best for the situation that you're in, right. um, depending on what you're, you're leading. Uh, and, and every, every situation is going to be different. It's just like cultural agility is not cultural adaptation all the time. Cultural agility is respond- You know, reading the, reading the lens that you're in the midst of a cultural difference and responding as needed. So you're right. I would agree with you. It's it is the most important outcome of culturally agile professionals is to be able to to do these three things well.
0: So now we've done a really good job of going over, uh, you know, all three parts and and touching on the uh, the subcomponents there. But maybe a lot of listeners are asking themselves, okay, why is this important? What does it mean to my leadership? Why should I care about cultural agility? How would you answer that question?
1: Right. It is so fundamental for us now to have culturally agile leaders because it is very rare when we're in a situation anymore that everyone with whom you interact and those who report into you will be seeing the world through very similar lenses as you do. Um, so the only way to lead effectively now is to kind of have that awareness of how people may be seeing the world differently, but then having those competencies, more importantly, to be able to respect and fully understand that, um, in order to motivate and, and and succeed as a leader, that we need to be respectful of the the context from which people are coming and, and you need the cultural agility to do that. yeah, that's a pretty, it's, a pretty powerful, it's a pretty powerful competency right now. Those who have it and do it well are succeeding, and those who do not have it, I, I really hope they find the contexts that um, are similar, <laughs> where, where everybody's predictable.
0: <laughs> no, I, I love it. And, and listeners, there's no better place to start than Build Your Cultural Agility, The Nine Competencies of Successful Global Professionals by Paula Calagiri. Um. Well, Paula, I'm just kind of curious because we talked about a lot. Uh, but is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you really want to leave listeners with before we close out?
1: So, so, Earl, you know, for your listeners, you know, I'd just like to offer. Um, I'm the the founder of a company called Skillify, um, and actually a co-founder because my the co- my other co-founder was an angel investor who his heart completely is with the idea that we need more people out there who have cultural agility. So he set the company up as a public benefit corporation. And what that means is that we give a lot away for free in an effort to upskill the world on how to build cultural agility. So I would just like to offer to your listeners that you're, you're certainly welcome to go on to our tool called My Guide. It's spelled M-Y-G-I-I-D-E dot com, so myguide.com, and um, My Guide will enable you to do both of those assessments. Remember I mentioned there's two parts of cultural agility. There's that cultural awareness piece, and then there's the cultural competency piece. Um, You can do free assessments on the cultural awareness, compare your values to um others. It's it's really it's, it's such a powerful tool for free. You get all kinds of tips on how to how to be effective in places like Japan or wherever you might be. So that's one free assessment. And the other free assessment is on those 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 critical competencies. Um, and so you can look at kind of where you are relative to those who have have had significant international experience and then you can learn some tips on how to build those. So it's, it's a great resource. So it's myguide.com. It's, it's got, kind of has a goofy double I, and the idea of the double I is that we're trying to help people see eye to eye.
0: No, I love it. I love the the kind of uh, wordplay there. That's, uh, uh, that's pretty ingenious. Uh, well, you know, thank you very much for spending, you know, the last 40 minutes or so with myself and, and my listeners. It's been an absolute treat. Uh, but before we let you get out of here, other than my guide, Uh, If people want to pick up a copy of the book, they want to find out more about Paula and and what you've done. And listeners, uh, I will tell you, there's a lot of great content from Paula out there. Uh, If you just go on YouTube and and look, there's a lot of great content. Uh, But is there any place that that you would particularly like to point listeners to find out more about you, what you do? If they want to have you come speak, uh, if they want to get copies of the book or other materials, what's a good place for them to do that?
1: Oh, certainly. So, so probably the best thing to do is send me a, a, a note. Um, and maybe the easiest one is, <laughs> this is always the challenge. If you can spell my surname, which I'm sure would be up on your, on your screen somewhere. Well, it's, you could just do paula.calajuri at skillify.com. Um, and all of those are a little challenging to spell, but I'm sure you're going to have the visual of it. But jury at skillify.com. If you send me an email, I can definitely get you to the resource that you might need. Um, and I'd be I'd be thrilled to connect.
0: Outstanding. We'll make sure that we get links in the show notes so uh, folks can just click on it and get there. And uh, you know, again, thank you very much for for spending this time with myself and my listeners. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Earl. It was great. Thank you.
0: No, all right. Thank you, and listeners, thank you for spending the time with Paula and I as we've had these conversations. Uh, I know you've taken a lot out of it. I encourage you to go get a copy of the book. Take advantage of those assessments. Again, you'll find all that stuff in the links in the show notes. You know, if you need to reach out to me, it's burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, story ideas, anything, reach out there uh, keep rating, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show. So my great guests like Paula can get their message spread further and reach more people the way that they want to and make that impact in the world, help people see eye to eye as a role you can play by, by sharing this information out. So thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you do. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode
1: ElectroCast. Transform your influence.
0: Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, I got this
1: chair. No, that's just my dad.
0: My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels
1: again with it. A-